John chapter 4 is our scripture reading, starting at verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, <clears throat> he left, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sachar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. <coughs> Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water up to, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town <clears throat> and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, 
I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his, home, in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Dylan, do you think you might be able to go up and give a hand with that buzzing up there? Ah, that's better. Okay, I thought I had a mosquito in my ear. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we bow before you in worship. Lord, we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Lord Jesus, who you are. Lord, I thank you that in the power of your Spirit you have sought us out and that you have done a work in our hearts, that you enabled us to see our sinfulness and our need of a Savior that you drew us to yourself. And Lord, we thank you that you are continuing to sustain us by your Spirit, that you are causing us, we who are truly worshiping you. Father, I pray that you will fill us with worship. And Lord, that everything that we do here this morning and in our lives would be to that end. Lord, that we would always have our eyes fixed firmly on you. We would increasingly see that eternity is the reality and that the life that we are living, the world that we are living in is, is passing away. Father, I pray that you would cause worship to spring up in our hearts. And Lord, that that worship would overflow into the lives of our families, into uh, the lives of our communities and workplaces and schools. Um, Lord, I pray that you will help us to reflect your glory as we worship you. Even as Moses reflected your glory when he came down from the mountain. So that those who are in our presence know that we have been in your presence and that we live in your presence. Lord, I pray that that would make a difference in the way that we talk to each other, in the way that we serve one another, in the way that, that we submit to one another, in the way that we respect 
and honor those who are in authority, whether it's parents or husbands or pastors or governments. Lord, I pray that all of these things would be worship, not done as though we could ever earn any points with you or whether we could make you love us more, but done out of gratitude for what you have done for us and simply because we love you. We pray that that would be true now and every day of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping as we stand together and sing What a Wonderful Savior, hymn number 531. Last week I began our study of, uh, of John 4, verses 1 to 45, by giving you an illustration from the life of David Brainerd, who served as a missionary to the North American Indians 300 years ago. Now his story is known because of his friendship with the evangelist and theologian Jonathan Edwards. But how many missionaries have gone into the wilderness whose stories haven't been told? We know about William Carey, we know about Hudson Taylor, we know about Jim Elliott, but do you know about John Leonard Dober and David Nitschmann? In 1732, they planned to leave Germany to minister to slaves in the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. When they're told that they wouldn't be allowed, they actually sold themselves as slaves in order to be able to go and minister to the slaves in these islands. Now, as the ship pulled away from the dock, they called out to their loved ones on the shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Think about that for a moment. Selling yourself into slavery in order to minister to slaves. Now, I have to say, I don't think I would jump at the chance to do that. Unless, of course, the Lord was calling me to do that. And I'd say that would probably be your response as well. You also wouldn't be jumping at the chance to sell yourself into slavery or even to leave the comforts of your home here in Canada to go and minister in some uncomfortable, hot, humid, bug-infested, disease-ridden part of the world amongst many people who don't even want the gospel that you're bringing. But these men went because they knew that the lamb that was slain shall receive the Lord, the reward of his suffering. They went because Jesus had died for some of these people and they wanted to go and to proclaim the gospel, to seek worshipers for the Lord. The God who was at work in David Brainerd was also at work in them. Remember what we said last week as I read from David Brainerd's journal. I'm now more sensible than ever that God alone is the author and finisher of our faith, i.e. that the whole and every part of sanctification and every good word, work, or thought found in me is the effect of his power and grace that without him I can do nothing. 
So whether it's David Brainerd serving amongst the North American Indians or whether it's these Moravians serving amongst slaves in the Caribbean or whether it's you and me serving in the places that the Lord calls us to, we can do nothing apart from God's grace in us. Nothing. Not only does God restrain his children from sin, but he also works in them to obey him. Every good work we do is in reality done by him. Every time we go to him in heartfelt prayer, every time we raise our voices in heartfelt worship, every time we respond in love to someone who is mistreating us, every time we give beyond our means, every time we share the gospel with somebody even though we're terrified to do so, every time we respect our fathers, mothers, husbands, leaders, we're doing this all because of God's work in our hearts. And they're all acts of worship. So the, the amazing deeds of these missionaries were simply acts of worship. In this passage, as I said last week, we, we see true judgment, true worship, and true evangelism. And I probably naively thought that I was going to be able to get through all those three points in one sermon. And then this week I thought I was going to naively be able to get through these two points in one sermon. But I'm going to have to just talk about true worship this morning because as I began to study these things, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. So I'm going to be talking, us, talking to us this morning about how this passage shows us the nature of true worship. So last week we focused, focused in on verses 1 to 19 and 25 to 29, where Jesus demonstrated true, correct judgment. How Jesus looked past the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and her gender, her, looked past her race, looked past her sinfulness, and saw in her a worshiper. How Jesus disregarded social customs in order to reach out to this woman who was looked down on not only by Jews, but even by her own people because of her sin. And we saw how Jesus offered this woman, this sinful Samaritan woman, he offered her living water. He offered her living water welling up into eternal life. And we saw how, how this sinful Samaritan woman repented and turned to Jesus, how she believed that he really was and is the Christ, and left her water jugs there and ran to share the good news that she had received with her countrymen. And I trust that this is the case for the majority of us here, that when we heard the good news of the gospel and responded in faith because of the Lord's work in our hearts, that we dropped our water jugs, we dropped whatever we were doing, we especially dropped the sin that we were engaged in and sought to, to testify of the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone who we could. But I wonder if maybe that, that has waned a little bit in your life. Maybe you're not, you're not quite as, as fired up about the gospel as you once were. 
Maybe you, you're at a place in your life where, where the, the, the embers have grown cold. But if you are truly born again, if the spark of life is really there, then I pray that in this word this morning, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that that, that, that spark would be fanned into a flame that would fuel our worship, that would change the way that we live our lives for the glory of God. So here in this passage, we see that this Samaritan woman was added to the chorus of witnesses, of the witnesses that the Apostle John presents bearing testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. She is one who, contrary to what many would have found impossible, what many would have believed impossible, found life in his name. Her testimony is given so that we would also believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we too may find life in his name. Now, as I said, I trust that many of us here are those who have already found life in the name of Christ. But again, I need to... to to ask you, to ask yourselves, to search your hearts before the Lord. Do you love God more than the day you did when you were first saved? Now, I'm not talking about any, in, any specific moment of time because I know we all fall into sin. We all fall into, into cold and dead times. But is the trajectory of your life towards God? Is the the bent of your life worship? Are you aware of the glories of the gospel more today than you were five years ago? Are you obeying God more today than you were five years ago or five days ago? Are you Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, as you love yourself more today than the day when you were first saved. It's really important that we ask ourselves these questions and where we fall short, and we all will fall short, that we go to the Lord with a heart of repentance, trusting in him, trusting that he is preserving our souls, that he really is the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he will do in us what we could never do to do ourselves. So this morning we're going to focus on what this passage teaches us about true worship. So Jesus came to this to this woman, knowing her heart, he knew what was in the hearts of men and women in a way that that we don't know. We don't even know this about our own hearts, but Jesus knew the blackness of this woman's heart. So he confronted her, telling her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Now many would think that that's unloving. He knew full well that she didn't have a husband. 
But this was the most loving thing that he could do to confront her about her sin. Now, as I explained last week, it doesn't always feel good. In fact, it usually feels pretty rotten when somebody comes to us and talks to us about our sin. But beloved, when somebody does that, they are doing the most loving thing that they can do towards you. Because they're willing in that moment to put aside the self-love that just wants to, to be at peace with everybody for the sake of peace. And going to you and confronting you, hope, hoping and praying that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will come to repentance. And as we know, this is what eventually happened with this woman. But she half confessed here. She said, I have no husband. So Jesus put the rest of the story out there and said, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you, what you have said is true. Now this woman knew that her sin had been exposed, so she declared, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. There was no hiding. It was out there. It was on the table. The sin was in, her sin was in the open. Now she could have, as so many do, she could have tried to, we talked about this last week, she could have denied it. She could have, have tried to make excuses. She could have said, well, that wasn't very loving. But she, she acknowledged, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, she went on here to say, that that you that, that that the Jews say that you should worship on that mountain. We believe we should worship on this mountain. Now, some people see this as an attempt to to redirect the conversation, as as a bit of an escape plan. Because after all, it is as Don Carson says, it's always easier to talk theology than it is to de to deal with truth that is personally distressing. Some people talk a really good game. But quite often when they do that, they're just hiding the truth that's in their hearts. This woman's comment, though, I don't believe that is actually her motivation here because her comment actually makes sense in this context. Calling Jesus a prophet and talking about the mountain, mountains of worship highlights the disparity between the beliefs of the Jews and the beliefs of the Samaritans. The Samaritans believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were canonical. They believed that, that only those first five books, so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus, that those five books were the, the only books that represented the canon. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. So they accepted Moses' words. They accepted when Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18 and 15 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
Now this is, is pointing to the Messiah, pointing to the anointed one, and Jesus believed, or that this woman believed that, that Jesus just might be that prophet. And she was right so far. So far she, she was on the right track, but there was a lot more wrong with her theology than was what was right with her theology because she had been adhering to the Samaritan belief system. And not only that, but she had shown that she had a faulty belief system because of the fruit of her life, because she was living in a willful pattern of sin. So she went on there in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And the you there she's referring to is, is the Jews. The mountain to which she's referring is Mount Gerizim. The mount on which, as we talked about last week, the pronouncement of blessings for keeping the covenant was given in Deuteronomy 11.29. The fathers to which she was referring were Abraham and Jacob, both of whom erected altars on Mount Gerizim. This is the place where the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12 and promised that, that he would give Abraham the land of Canaan. So in response, Abraham raised up an altar to the Lord in worship. Then in Genesis 33, after Jacob had met his brother Esau for the first time since cheating him out of his inheritance, Jacob expected Esau to kill him, but instead Esau surprised Jacob by, by welcoming him in love and embracing him as a brother. So there on Mount Gerizim, Jacob also erected an altar to the Lord. Now, now they had actually obeyed. There was, there was altars all over the place in, in this period as altars of remembrance for what the Lord had done, not altars where worship of, or where sacrificial worship was to be performed. But that is precisely what the Samaritans did. They actually built a temple, a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem, one that was, that was similar to the temple in Jerusalem. And this is attested to by extra-biblical sources like Josephus, who says that Sanballat built a temple on Mount Gerizim, and that like at Jerusalem, there they offered sacrifices. And the apocryphal 2 Maccabees also refers to this false temple. And amazingly, a group of Samaritans still worship on this site to this day. And that was certainly the case in the time of Jesus. So as the woman testifies, the Jews, on the other hand, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Jews hold that Mount Moriah, the temple mount in Jerusalem, is the legitimate site and the only legitimate site for the temple. The Lord clearly told Abraham in Genesis 22-2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And this is, the, the Samaritans believed that this, the sacrifice, or the, the willing sacrifice of, of Abraham was, was on Mount Gerizim instead of Mount Moriah. This is also the site of the threshing floor belonging to Ornan, where David saw the angel of the Lord that was going to destroy Israel. And so David 
asked Onan for, a, for a, an ox to sacrifice on that spot. And that spot is the site of the first temple. Solomon began construction of this temple in 2 Chronicles 3. So clearly it was, to the, it was the Jews who had the correct location. And Jesus had also attested to this fact by calling the temple his father's house in John 2.16. Now Jesus is going to further vindicate the position of the Jews above the Samaritans in a minute, but for now he had far more important issues to attend to. He says to the woman in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. No longer will salvation be considered the sole property of any particular race. This is the fulfillment of Matthew 1.11. For from the, sorry, Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be, among, will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In every place, incense will be offered in my name. But even more than that, Jesus is saying that in the new covenant, worship won't be limited to any temple, neither the temple of the Samaritans nor the temple of the Jews. And Solomon, who was the builder of the temple, acknowledged this. He said it, well, at least in part, he said in 2 Chronicles 2.6, But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? So, so even Solomon, with his limited understanding that the Messiah would come and who the Messiah would be and what those sacrifices pointed to, even he understood to a degree what the temple was all about. But we here on the other side of the cross do understand that the temple and the whole sacrificial system pointed ahead to Jesus and the sacrifice that he was going to make on the cross, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Please turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 7 of Hebrews 9 says that the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So this is on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would offer a sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies. Now he would, he would do so with, with bells tied around his waist so that those who were on the outside of the Holy of Holies could hear him moving around in there to know that he was still alive, that he had not been struck dead because of, of any unrepented sin in his heart. So as he moved around to, to, throw, to, to throw the sacrificial blood on the, the, ark, on the horns of the Ark of the Covenant, they could, they could hear him moving and know that he was still alive. And he actually had a rope tied around his ankle so that if he was struck dead, 
because of any impurity, the other priests would be able to pull him out without having to go in there and sell themselves and risk being killed themselves because of entering into the presence of the holy God. All of these things point to Jesus Christ and point to the requirement that it was God himself who had to die for us. That Jesus Christ is our high priest. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to, opportunity to share the gospel with, with a couple who had been influenced by Jehovah Witnesses. And in explaining to them the gospel, I explained that, that no created being, as the, the Jehovah Witnesses believe that, that Jesus is, is simply the angel, the archangel Michael, a created being, they don't believe that he's fully God the Son. That their belief system is, is unable to save anyone because they are still dead in their sins because they do not believe in God the Son. And I explained that that's why they have to, to do works because they don't know forgiveness, and they're still in sin. Verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9 say, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means by the, by the blood of, go, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Beloved, this is the great salvation that we have. Salvation in the blood of Christ. Let these truths wash over your heart afresh and let them in the power of the Holy Spirit cause worship to well up in your heart. Beloved, in Christ, the sacrificial system of the temple has been abolished. The temple was never meant to be about the temple. It was meant to point to Christ. The temple points to him. He is the temple. He is the Holy of Holies. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. His is the blood that was shed. So Jesus is saying to this woman here that people won't have to go anywhere to worship God. One place is not more holy than another. Now, we commonly refer to this room as the sanctuary. And I've done this myself just because I can't think of, of a better name to call it. It's awkward to call it the room where we gather on Sunday mornings to, to sing praises and to hear the word preached. So we use shorthand and say the sanctuary. But beloved, we are the sanctuary. We are the sanctuary. We are God's temple, and his spirit dwells in us, 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is true of us individually, as our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within us, 1 Corinthians 6.19, and corporately, as the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, Ephesians 2.21. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about yourself as the holy of holies, as having the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. 
Now we'll be talking a lot more about this when we get to John 16, Lord willing. But when you understand, Christian, that God the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it changes everything. You realize that you are never alone. You're able to more powerfully experience comfort and the peace that passes all understanding. You're able to rely on God's strength to love and to serve Him and to love and to serve others. Not on your own strength. In fact, you find true strength in your weakness. You are, as we'll see in a moment, able to worship God in spirit and in truth. So may the Lord give us a profound, ever-present understanding of the fact that we, beloved, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And may that change the way that we live our lives. May it cause us to realize when we're tempted with that pet sin that God is right there with us. May it cause us to realize when we're tempted to react in anger or in sin towards our brothers or sisters in Christ that we together are being built up into a holy temple for God. Jesus goes on in verse 22, saying to the woman, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is saying here that the Samaritans are ignorant in their worship. They think that they're worshiping God, but they aren't. They have a temple. They have the law. But they are just as pagan as the men of Athens at the Areopagus in Acts 17 with an altar to the unknown God. He says salvation is of the Jews. Paul says in Romans 9, 4, and 5 that they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. In redemptive, in redemptive history, God chose to work through a chosen people to make covenant with them, to give his law to them, to seek them to worship him, to make his promises to them, and to bring his son through them. Samaritans and Jews might have the same patriarchs, but they don't have the same God. If you look at the 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 genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, the similarity stops with the patriarchs. Those are Jews in there, and they all lead to Jesus. It's all about him. But in pointing to the superseding of the temple, Jesus is showing that the Jews don't have it all right either. So many of them missed the point. They thought that it was all about the temple, and they thought that it was all about them. But how many churches today are like those Samaritans, are those Athenians, worshiping a God that they don't know? How many churches are like those Jews, thinking that it's all about them and their buildings? Now we see these things and we, we reject these things. We loathe these things. But let's not be too hasty in our judgment. 
We, we may know God in a way that they don't, but we don't yet know God as we should either. And any knowledge that we have of God comes as a gift of God's grace to us. We may strive to take up our cross daily and to follow Jesus, but we also often act as though it's all about us. And beloved, that's why it's all about grace. That's why true worship is all about grace. We who are depending on Christ aren't depending on our goodness, our obedience, our love, our worship, or our anything. Jesus continues with the woman in, in verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. With the arrival of Jesus, the time for true spiritual worship had come, but it wouldn't be fully established until the cross. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Beloved, that's why we're the ones who are seeker-sensitive. Romans 3.10 says that no one seeks for God. So it's a good thing that God is seeking for them. Without God's work in our hearts, we would never seek him. Salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. It's not that God does his part and we do our part. It is God's work alone. He affects every part of our salvation. From repentance to glorification, it is all a gift of the Lord. Now, granted, we do work. We're told to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the work that we do, even the desire to do that work, all comes as a gift from the Lord. It is all from the work of God in our hearts. Jesus says that God is spirit. Now, we talked about this when we studied the attributes of God from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the answer to the question, what is God? If you remember, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So Jesus here is contrasting the spiritual with the natural. D.A. Carson explains that in this context, spirit characterizes what God is like in the same way that flesh, location, and corporeality characterize what human beings and their world are like. In the same way, God is spirit means that God is invisible, divine, and as opposed to the human life-giving, unknowable human... Sorry, let me say that again. In the same way, God is spirit means that God is invisible and divine as opposed to human life-giving and unknowable to human beings unless he chooses to reveal himself. God is spirit. If left in our flesh, we are only natural. We will only think in natural, fleshly ways unless the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts. 
to wake us up to eternal spiritual realities and to draw us to salvation in Jesus Christ. And because God is spirit, the only correct form of worship is spiritual worship. Worship is not comprised of an outward system of actions, but an inward focus of the heart. It's easy to perform outward deeds. It's easy to come to church on a Sunday morning and sing songs and say, I've done it, I've worshipped God, and tick a spiritual box. True worship isn't just something that we do at the beginning and the end of our church service on Sundays. It's easy to pray five times daily, to spend an hour in the Bible every day, to fast twice a week, and so on. But true worship isn't just praying and reading and fasting. Now, true worship can include prayer, Bible study, and fasting, and should include those things. But those things are not the measure of spiritual worship. How do you respond in the midst of a difficult trial? How do you respond when someone is being disrespectful to you? How do you honor your father or your mother or your husband when they do dishonorable things? Responding in the right way, with the right heart, responding in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, these things are the measure of true spiritual worship. All of those things are impossible apart from God's grace in us. That's why our worship needs to be spiritual. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3.3. This past Wednesday evening, we, were, we began the, the study of the book Shepherding a Child's Heart. And there in the introduction, uh, Tripp talked about the, the way that, that you encourage a child um, not just to, not to fight back against a bully and not even to ignore a bully, but instead to, to love and serve a bully. Now, as I thought about that, I was convicted of, of many times, many, many times, even in, I'm ashamed to say, even in the not-too-distant past when, when I have responded inappropriately to a bully. When I have sought to, to either respond in kind, thinking that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, or when I have, have sought to defend myself as though my honor needed Defending. Anytime I have, have fallen short of sacrificially loving and serving those who persecute and despitefully use me, I am falling short of the glory of God and I am sinning.
Now, where does that take me? Where does that take you? I pray that it takes you to the cross. Where you realize that you can't do anything, nothing of any eternal value apart from God's Spirit at work in your heart. That would cause each one of us to realize how much we need Jesus. I need thee every hour. That's true of each one of us. We also are, are told that worship must be in truth. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. True worship must be grounded in truth. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says that God hands sinners over to the lust of their hearts because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. If you are truly born again, you will believe the fundamentals of the faith and be growing in correct doctrine. I was talking to a lady the other day who, who said that we don't need doctrine, we just need Jesus. Now, is that true? I said to her that all kinds of people say they have Jesus, but they have no idea who he is. No, you don't have to take a, a doctrinal exam when you finish this life and enter glory. You're not going to be graded on those types of things. But as soon as you say something about Jesus, you're talking doctrine. And your doctrine is either right or it's wrong. And having wrong doctrine might just point to the fact that you're not truly saved. John lays doctrine down as one of the, the cardinal tests of salvation in 1 John. If you don't believe that Jesus is the sinless Son of God, then you are not saved. If you don't believe, believe that salvation comes only through his substitutionary death on the cross, you are not saved. That being said, it's possible to have correct doctrine and not be saved. It's easy to have correct doctrine in the same sense that it's easy to practice external obedience. Just read the right books. Study the right things. Listen to the right sermons. And you might have right, right doctrine, but still be dead in your sins and transgression, transgressions. I used to equate a belief in the doctrines of grace as being almost synonymous with being solid in the faith. However, I've learned that there's far more telling areas to search out in order to determine whether somebody is solid or not. Now, do I believe the doctrines of grace are important? Yes, I believe this is clearly what Scripture teaches. But I'm thinking again here about the questions that I asked earlier. How do you respond in trial? How do you respond to disrespect? How do you respond to temptation when you think nobody's watching? These are the things that determine the reality of our faith. 
So it's not enough just to believe the right things about God. We have to act on the right things about God. We, we went into great detail about this when we studied James chapter 2. Faith alone, we, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It will bear fruit in our lives. If we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, there will be a visible, demonstrable impact in our lives. Others will see how we're different. Others will see how we're growing. And I pray that as we think about these things, as we, we study the trajectory of our lives, that we are examining ourselves in the power of the Holy Spirit and searching out those things to determine whether we really are in the faith or whether we're not. Determine, to determine whether we really are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And to remember that we can't do it. We can't do it apart from God's grace that's in us. And that in turn would cause us to would fuel even deeper and more powerful worship in our hearts as we simply cast ourselves on Christ, on His grace and His mercy. And that a fire of revival would spring up in our hearts and in the life of this church and in this community for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, nothing in our hand we bring, simply to thy cross we cling. Lord, we know that we have nothing to commend ourselves to you. Lord, I trust that by your spirit you have convicted hearts, even as you convicted my heart in the preparation of this message and in the preaching of this message. But Lord, I pray that, that this wouldn't just pass as we walk out of this room, as though this room were more holy than anywhere else. But Lord, I pray that this would bear fruit in our lives for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.